0: welcome to sex care is self-care a conversation on women's sexual health brought to you by the patty brisbane foundation for women's sexual health i'm your host patty brisbane today i'm joined by one of the PBF's 2021 grant recipients dr alexis dieter to discuss her research on behalf of the society of gynecologic surgeons and dr michael critchman chair of the pbf medical advisory board Hello, everyone. So let's take a moment, introduce yourselves to the listeners. And so Dr. Critchman, let's start with you.
1: Hi, Patty. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to do this really important uh, podcast. I'm Dr. Critchman. I have been with the PBF Foundation for many years. It's one of my uh, passion projects. I'm the chair for the medical board, and I'm really excited to be here and really help promote um, our mission. And really, we're funding amazing grants. And I'm really excited that we're going to be doing this discussion with grant recipients. And I really believe that, you know, we're now heading into a new era with the PBF, and we're going to change the landscape of women's health, women's sexual health. And it's really an honor to be here to discuss this really important grant with Dr. Dieter.
2: Hi, yeah, so I'm Alexis Dieter. I'm a urogynecologist uh, at MedStar Health in Washington, DC. Um, I, my background is OBGYN training and then a fellowship in what's called female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, which is a very long name for urogynecology. And I'm the primary investigator on this study looking at um, treatment for women with lichen sclerosis.
0: Thank you so much for joining us here this morning. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Dieter. What is the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons? What do they do? What what is that all about?
2: So it's a society that was started a long time ago, I think rather informally, and now has become um, one of the leading societies in our field focused on um, the surgical fields within OBGYN. So it includes people from... Um, general gynecology, um, female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery or urogynecology, uh, GYN oncology and then minimally invasive gynecologic surgery which is sort of a newer subspecialty. Um, And it's a wonderful society that really contributes to our field in many different ways through research, education um, and dissemination of information. Um, To become a member of it, you actually have to be voted into the society. So it's one of the smaller ones um, within our field, but it has a really wonderful uh, membership population. And um, so we have yearly meetings and they release different guidelines and things like that, in addition to doing um, annual conferences where people are able to present their research to the community.
0: So it really helps doctors out there to grow their practices and get better treatment plans for their patients, correct?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean their mission is to you know advance our understanding of gynecologic surgery, how best to serve our patients and make sure that all women are able to access you know the like, top of the line care for their gynecologic issues. And then That's within, I, mean. um, I don't know if you were going to ask about the core group, but I'm happy to talk about now or in a yeah. little bit.
0: No, go ahead and talk about the core um, So
2: there's, within the SGS, they just started sponsoring what's called the core group, um, and that was initially started um, at, by some junior faculty members. Dr. Kara Grimes was the founder, and then um, Sherelle Iglesia, Kim Kenton, and Holly Richter are kind of the mentors on that. And now it's been formally adopted by SGS, which again, just shows really their commitment to advancing our knowledge and supporting investigators in this field. Um, And so it's out there basically to allow people from all different sites across the country who wanna do collaborative research where they're able to really reach a larger population um, in order to get better results and better information to help inform our decision-making. And it's a wonderful new, I guess, uh, network within the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons that we're really excited about.
0: I'm excited to see you excited about this. Um, (laughs) Let me ask you a question here. Your study is investigating a new treatment for lichen sclerosis. What is lichen sclerosis? And how many women are really affected by this?
2: Yeah, so it's a um, very, it's a relatively common condition. And it's something that a lot of women may not even know they have. Um, and it's commonly kind of underdiagnosed until you reach maybe a GYN specialist. Um, so it's basically a condition that mainly affects like the vulvar skin, which is kind of outside tissues on the vagina, like the labia um, and um, kind of the area between the anus and the vagina called the perineum. Um, and it can cause, Symptoms of like irritation, um, burning, pain, and um, also cause changes in appearance that are consistent. Like the typical things you see is kind of a lightening of the color of the skin, a thinning out. They used to call it kind of the classic thing would be a cigarette paper um, appearance, which I don't think any of the medical students now don't even know what cigarette paper <laughs> looks like, but for older people, you may know. <laughs> Um, and so it, um, also they see like the labial architecture changes so that you have less prominence of the labia and in some more advanced cases, the skin can actually start to adhere together. So it causes issues with urination, obviously sexual function and just general kind of comfort in that area. And then there's a very low risk with lichen sclerosis over time of actually developing like a, a precancerous or cancerous change within the skin. Um, and so that's another reason why we're really focused on learning how to best control this to hopefully reduce the chance of that happening to anyone. In terms of, oh, I was gonna say, in terms of who, who's affected, it's mainly Um, women with low estrogen levels. So we see kind of a peak in postmenopausal women. And then also sometimes it happens in women and like young girls who haven't yet gone through menarche um, as well.
0: So what's the percentage of women who are actually affected by this?
2: You know, it's a little bit hard to determine because um, they have like different studies, but I mean, it's thought to be maybe around like 10 to 20% of women overall, although it's a little bit hard to say um, because they just aren't, I think we're kind of underdiagnosing, and it's sort of difficult to diagnose in some ways. Um, there's not really a clear um, diagnostic criteria in terms of you know, diagnosing it. You can do pathology where you do like a biopsy, but even then it's very inconsistent results. So um, it's a little unclear, but probably, you know, anywhere between up to like 10 or 20% of women may be affected over the course of their lifetime. That's enough. Yeah, it's a lot.
0: But yes, that's a lot. Uh, Dr. Critchman, what are some of the traditional treatments for lichen sclerosis?
1: So, you know, Patty, it's, it's really a controversial issue. And, you know, I think the, the big challenge with lichen sclerosis is, is we really haven't made such great progress with the traditional uh, treatment. And, you know, this is a chronic progressive condition and it's a skin disorder that really has a huge impact on women's lives women's sexual lives. And even overall, you know, what I'm seeing is even their overall quality of life. I have women that can't sit, they can't walk. They're constantly aware of the burning, itching, and pain. And as a clinician, you know, we've tried a lot of things. Traditionally, we started with some hormones. We thought that maybe testosterone would help, and you know, significantly, it doesn't. Very often, women who are in the menopause have uh, dryness, not only in the v- vaginal area but the vulvar area as well. So, we've thought about maybe estrogen or estrogen and testosterone, and then we have the issues with the 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 way that medications are made sometimes they have even medications or or additives that make the issue much more problematic they have things that are may even exacerbate the burning we also have really um, other things and really the mainstay has been topical steroids really to decrease inflammation so traditional treatments really have shortcomings, and that's why I think Dr. Dieter's study is really exciting because there is really a huge unmet need where we have good science to support safe and effective treatments. You know, we're kind of putting, you know, um, you know, a band-aid on a geyser, and we're really trying to taper these, and we're kind of trying new things. There's all kinds of things that are, you know, people are trying to help these women who are clearly suffering whether it's phototherapy or even um, you know different types of injections with different materials and we really haven't made much progress so you know I'm really excited about this because I think the preliminary data does support the fact that this is going to be really a good treatment so you know we've had shortcomings and it's really been problematic one of the one of the newer things that I've used and I know, um, other clinicians have tried to use is something like hemp oil or even CBD oil as it's an anti-inflammatory as well. But again, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. With every uh, treatment, there comes complications, there comes adverse issues. Some women are concerned about hormones and they don't really work that well. You know, the the concept of chronic use of steroids also may exacerbate underlying skin conditions as well. So really, um, you know, kudos to the PBF for really looking at an unmet medical need. Uh, That's really impactful on women.
0: Thank you. Um, Dr. Dieters, I need you to reach deep right now and tell us why this study is so important at this time.
2: Well, I think, you know, really, as Dr. Krichman was talking about, this is really an unmet need for a significant proportion of women who are out there kind of suffering in silence with these issues. I mean, typically, they suffer from this for a very long time before even having it properly diagnosed and recognized. And the more um, at earlier access we can get them to effective treatments is really going to impact their quality of life and their function and reduce their suffering. So it's very exciting that there's this new therapy out there, and we just need more data to really show that it is safe and effective for these women so that we can get insurance coverage for them to be able to really open up that access, because right now it's really only available to people who can pay out of pocket, which obviously really limits like who can get access to this.
0: Absolutely. Um, Dr. Krichman, tell us a little bit about laser therapy and the controversy surrounding its use. So,
1: you know, Patty, I came out pretty strong about, you know, laser therapy and some of the newer data that came out. And I think some of the, the challenges are really about the study design. So first and foremost, I'm I'm so with Dr. Dieter about this concept of, you know, this is, an, you know has become an elitist procedure, which is quite expensive. Um, and again, you know, study design is really important. And I know Dr. Dieter will talk a little bit after me about a, what a, a, a randomized double blind placebo trial is, but a lot of these have been very small studies, a uh, few women, there's been no placebo. So what that means is that, you know, some people may get better, um, and they don't have any intervention. So we really need to compare the intervention with just watchful waiting and see where they are. The other big issue is many of these studies have said, you know, they follow people and there was no adverse events, meaning that it was completely safe, there was no risks, there was no uh, issues and everybody should get it and just uh, sign up and give me your credit card or your checkbook or bring in a wad of cash. The challenge is for me, if you follow people for four weeks, there's a lot of things that can happen, whether it's a urine infection, a yeast infection, what have you. They may not be associated with the intervention, but we really need to look at what is happening to women as they progress through this treatment. The other issue is there's no standardization. You know, we have different lasers using different frequencies for different amounts of treatments. Um, you know, and we really have to be able to separate fact from fiction. That all being said, you know, there's this wonderful saying that says, you know, pioneers get slaughtered and settlers get land. So, you know, I think innovation is really important and gathering data that's good high quality data from, you know, expert researchers like Dr. Dieter and her team is really critical to advance the science. And I'm not, um, you know, I'm not adverse to lasers. I just am adverse to bad science and putting women at risk. And we do need high quality data by dedicated academics who are following the guidelines and rules for research in order to have this really vetted, right? Because, you know, those that do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Not every medical intervention is perfect and amazing and does wonderful things, and we want to do no harm, and especially for women who are suffering, right? So getting that data, following women, publishing it in appropriate journals is really a critical step to moving science forward and really changing the direction of women's health and women's sexual health as well.
0: Perfect. Um, Okay, Dr. Dieters, what is a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, and why is the study design so important?
2: Yeah, so that's a wonderful question, and I think it's a really important one for people to be able to kind of understand how um, we try to structure things in research studies. So, you know, as Dr. Kritchman said, our first and foremost priority is doing no harm to patients. And so when we have a new type of intervention, initially you start with kind of smaller studies trying to make sure that there's no real harm um, from the intervention. And then you try to look more closely at exactly what the benefits are. When we're doing studies, what we try to do is control as many uh, factors as we can in terms of how people's awareness of being assigned different treatments is gonna affect their perception. And that includes the researchers as well as the participants. So we know that if people know what treatments they're getting, that can change a little bit their perception of how they're doing. So there's always a placebo effect that you see in trials. So even in people who are in a trial, who are given no treatment but they aren't aware of it and they think they're getting something, they will see some improvement. But we, so that's why we have to kind of compare between those. So a, a randomized trial takes a group of women, all who have similar kind of um, background in terms of their you know, condition and their treatment goals and who have all chosen to enroll. We randomize them like a flip of a coin to one treatment or the other. And what we, when it's a blinded trial, um, it means that someone in the trial doesn't know what treatment they're getting. And that can be either the participant or the research team. And double-blinded means that both sides don't know. So in this trial, all the women are gonna be getting laser therapy, but they won't know if they're getting the additional clobetasol, which is that traditional steroid that we've been using in addition to the laser. And also we won't know that. Um, I won't know that. The study team won't know that. We just know that they'll get either a certain color of the dispenser versus another color. And then at the end, once we've collected all our data and done all our measurements and things like that, then we unblind and do the analysis to determine the effect.
0: This sounds like an intense study and an awesome study at that. So, God, I like to be sitting in that room when everything's unfolded.
2: I know. Um, That's the best part.
0: (laughs) I bet it is. That would be so exciting. Uh, What impact do you anticipate from this study?
2: So I think this study is going to be really important because it's going to gather more data about the laser and then also show us if combining therapy is gonna be more effective. And that's really important, particularly in this case because the laser has already started to be used in dermatologic research as like an augmentation for delivering topical medicines. So the way the laser works is by creating micro perforations in the skin. And so by doing so, it allows the clovetazole probably to permeate the skin better and therefore have a better effect, which would be really wonderful to be able to combine together and see that added benefit. Um, and so I think if that is what's proven in this trial, we'll be able to move forward and get the data we need to do an even larger study where we really do exactly kind of what Dr. Kritchman is talking about, where we do an arm where people aren't getting laser, an arm where people get laser plus the clovetazole and really kind of, and maybe just a laser arm and just a clovetazole arm. And that's kind of the ultimate study to really show the effect, effectiveness of these different treatment options. And that hopefully, once we are able to do that study, if it does show that it's safe and effective, then we'll really have great data to support, you know, offering this widely to women and allowing it to, you know, get covered by insurance so that women can access the treatment.
0: I think that's so important. Um, having coverage in, in, with your insurance company. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's so many treatments out there that are not covered and that you're paying out of pocket. So yeah, let's, I can't wait till this research comes available. Last question. Why is female sexual health research so important to you?
2: I mean, I'm obviously as a gynecologist, we are interested in female health and a big component of that is sexual health. Um, You know, it's interesting um, because we talk about it all the time in my field and then, you know, I'll kind of go out, it's sort of like a taboo topic sometimes in different communities. Um, And it always sort of takes me by surprise how prevalent that still is. And I think, you know, the more that as scientists and researchers, we prioritize this and show that it's an important outcome that is scientifically relevant, I think that that gives more, um, you know, weight to considering it as an important part of women's life. I mean, in in urogynecology, our entire focus is quality of life. You know, we're not a cancer treatment field, like we're trying to increase people's quality of life. And a huge part of that is their sexual health. Um, And so that's why I think these kinds of studies where we really incorporate those measurements into it, Um, are really, really important. And it's wonderful because, you know, we've seen so much more priority given to that over like the last 10 and five years. The uh, SGS group actually has a systematic review group that looks through literature. And we just did a really big systematic review looking at sexual function before and after prolapse surgeries that had a lot of really important information for us. And like the more we can get that out there and prioritize it as a research topic, it's going to be really, really great to just increase people's awareness and acknowledge how important that is for quality of life.
0: Right. I think it is so important to get people comfortable in their own skin talking about sexual health because you're right. It's it's a taboo subject in many homes and we want people to get comfortable so there is a better quality of life. Yeah. Dr. Krishman, do you have anything that you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Patty, I think the important thing is sometimes we lose sight as clinicians what our ultimate goal is, and we, you know, I always say, um, cure often but comfort always. And I think the impact of disease um, sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of trying to cure, or stamp out disease, and we we forget about the like that disease is chronic and progressive and very impactful. So, so it's addressing the why, that's what um, is really important. And when you speak with women and you listen, and I always say, you know, we have two ears and one mouth. So sometimes we've got to listen twice as much as we speak when we're a clinician and listen to the patient. We really understand that this is hugely impactful and that's the why why they're there sitting in front of you asking help and you know research like what Dr. Dieter is doing and what the PBF is funding really is helping the why helping understand the impact and sexuality really is hugely impactful and we know that you know sexual health is general health and if people aren't being intimate and being close for a variety of reasons it really impacts their overall Uh, general health and wellness, and it leads to other issues that are really challenging as well. So I think it's important that we address the why and sexuality studies like Dr. Dieter really are cutting edge, really going to advance the science. Uh, And I think we're really lucky to have researchers like Dr. Dieter and her team that are committed to Uh, furthering quality of life for women who are really suffering in silence and really in desperate need of getting uh, really good help as well.
0: And, you know, and and it does start with this research by giving this research to our doctors so that they can really help these women with their quality of life. Right now, I want to thank my guests, Dr. Alexis Dieters and Dr. Michael Critchman for a great great conversation. For more information on the Patty Brisbane Foundation and sexual health and our six area focuses, visit the Patty Brisbane Remember, sex care is self-care and sexual health matters.